Good morning, St. Barnabas. I'll be reading from Mark 12, verse 18 to 27. That's Mark 12, verse 18 to 27. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no, ch- no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, Are you not an heir, because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like angels in heaven. Now, about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, you are badly mistaken. This is the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Ruby, thank you very much indeed. Well, let's have our Bibles open at that passage. And uh, before we begin, I'm going to pray. Won't you bow with me? Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, you've taught us that we are not to live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. We pray that you would come to us this morning as a father with little children, that you would break down for us the bread of life. We pray that you would not only open our mouths that we might feed, but also our hearts that we might inwardly digest the food of the gospel. And we pray that as we look again into your word, that we might find our Lord Jesus Christ as the bread of life, who has come down from heaven, that in him we might enjoy eternal and everlasting life. Speak to us then, Lord, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Joe Flax was, (coughs) excuse me, Joe Flax was an American evangelist. Um, who preached all over the world in the 1920s and 30s. When he died in 1940, uh, they discovered that he'd arranged uh, a special card to be sent to all his friends and family. And this is what he wrote on the inside. This is to announce that I have left the mud house. I have arrived in glory. I'm enjoying great care. There is fullness of joy just as promised. I'm absent from the body, but present with the Lord. I will look out for you. Till then, 
look up. It's a marvellous thing to say that, isn't it, as you prepare for what happens actually to every Christian unless the Lord Jesus returns first. Now we know that Jesus spoke about the resurrection with tremendous conviction and not only spoke about it but actually proved the reality of it by his own resurrection from the dead. But in Mark 12 and in our passage this morning, Jesus is mocked for that. Now for the last few uh, Sunday mornings we've been following the attacks on the Lord Jesus by the religious leaders. Uh, Just to remind you, he's in the temple, which is where, of course, he should have been loved and respected. But in fact, he's being attacked. And a couple of weeks ago, they came to him and they said, who gave you the right to do any of this? To say the things you're saying and to do the things you're doing. And we saw that uh, Jesus responded in the most memorable way. And then in, in last week's passage... They attack Jesus in a slightly more devious way by asking whether people should pay taxes to Caesar or not. And the question was designed to get Jesus into hot water, uh, either with the Romans or with the people. But Jesus gave them again a brilliant and unforgettable reply, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And uh, you may remember I mentioned last week that most people know only the first half of that verse. It's as if they actually know the whole verse, but are actually rather frightened by the personal challenge of the second half. Now today we find Jesus facing the kind of opposition that is probably the hardest of all to deal with. And that is when you're being ridiculed, when you're being mocked. And I think we need to take heart from Jesus this morning because, of course, we face very similar opposition today. Sometimes it's direct, sometimes it's devious, but we've all experienced it. And therefore, we mustn't miss the fact that in all of the attacks that Jesus has had to deal with in these chapters, Jesus is not afraid of the opposition. Actually, the opposition are afraid of him. Jesus is not afraid of them. I don't know whether you agree with me, but I think one of the saddest things in the church in the West at the moment is that it is receiving a fair amount of opposition, but it's actually frightened of it. The Western world is not the slightest bit afraid of the church, but it seems the church is afraid of the Western world. And yet, of course, in other parts of the world and in other periods of history, when the church has had a holy fear of God, the world has been afraid of the church. And I think it's really rather sad, uh, even rather pathetic, when the church apologises to the world for things that God has said in his word which are not to be apologised for. And I hope you agree with me. Of course, Jesus never apologised for the word of God because it brings the liberty and the healing and the hope and the joy that the whole world is looking for. Well, the the group that approaches Jesus here are called the Sadducees. Uh, These people were typically wealthy. They were rather worldly men, even though they formed part of the Jewish ruling council in the temple. They were very selective in their beliefs 
and they only accepted the first five books of the Bible, that is Genesis through to Deuteronomy. And like many people today, they were cynical about anything supernatural. And that's why, of course, in verse 18, they're saying there is no resurrection. So, friends, this morning, let's look at this little section under three headings. Uh, The first is the ridicule. That's unbelievable. The second is the reply. That is unbeatable. And the third is the relationship that is unbreakable. Really been working hard on the alliteration this week. So firstly then, the ridicule, that's unbelievable. Come with me to verse 18. The Sadducees come to Jesus with their question, and their purpose is to mock the whole idea of the resurrection. And to do it, what they're going to do is put one scripture against another scripture. It would be, I suppose, a bit like me saying to you this morning, how could God possibly have rested on the seventh day and yet the world continued as before? And here, the Sadducees take a law from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 25, which was designed to enable a widow who had no children, no family, no legacy, to be given the opportunity to have children from the brother of her dead husband. Now, I know that sounds really weird to us, but in the days before the old age pension, it was a way of ensuring that a vulnerable woman would be provided for when she could no longer look after herself. So the Sadducees come to Jesus with their story in verses 20 to 23. Can't prove it, I think it's probably a made-up story. But even if it were true, they're using it as a joke. And essentially what they're saying to Jesus is this. Uh, We know a widow, and she married brother number one, then brother number two, and so on, all the way through to brother number seven. None of them caused her to get pregnant. Now, if there is a resurrection, which brother is she going to run to? Uh, Which brother is she going to throw her arms around? Which brother is she going to live with? So you see that they're actually mocking the whole idea of the resurrection. Now, before we actually look at uh, the reply Jesus gives, I want us to notice that these people are mocking something highly significant. I mean, it is odd, isn't it, that you would mock something that is potentially so very wonderful. It's almost unbelievable, really. You would think that, yes, they might be sceptical, but you would think they would say to Jesus, "Uh, look, all this talk about the resurrection seems to us to be far-fetched. But if it were true... It would obviously be very wonderful. So can you please give us some evidence? That's what you would expect them to say. Just as you would hope that at a funeral today, when the family have got nothing to do but to look back over the life of the loved one, and they aren't thinking about the future, and all of a sudden the pastor jumps up and he says, but friends, there is a resurrection. It's available to you now. And you would hope that at that point some people 
at the funeral would be thinking, I need to know more about that. I need to go and talk to the pastor afterwards. I'm completely in the dark about this, but I want to know more. I want to find out how to get it. But of course they don't. Actually, that kind of reply is extremely rare today. Well, the Sadducees here are are mocking something highly significant. Actually, the Old Testament didn't tell them a great deal about the resurrection. Of course, it was real in the Old Testament. But the information, the data, is just a little bit shadowy. Uh, So, for example, in Psalm 23, uh, the psalmist says, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's a little hint there, isn't there? Or in Job, chapter 19, Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives. In Isaiah 25, there's actually quite a detailed description of the new creation. In Daniel chapter 12, uh, Daniel talks about multitudes rising up from the dust of the earth on the day of the Lord. Daniel 12 verse 2. So there are a number of signposts in the Old Testament pointing us forward to the resurrection. But it doesn't really become clear what it actually means until we get to the New Testament and the resurrection of Jesus. So why are they attacking something so attractive? I hope you're tracking with me here. This is really important. I mean, it is almost beyond belief. But I hope in your heart you know the answer. Because the answer is that if all this teaching about the resurrection is true, then you're going to have to take seriously the person who holds the keys to the future. People don't want to do that. And so instead, they mock it. The comedian Eddie Izzard said, if there was life after death, it would be nice if just one person came back to let us know. But of course they have. It's what we've been celebrating for 2,000 years. Presumably Mr. Izzard doesn't know that. So we need to recognise, friends, this is the serious point, that there is a bias away from the evidence, even though the evidence is pointing to something really attractive. And mockery, or ridicule, or humour, is one way of doing that. that. Can I say that I think humour is a wonderful gift from God that should be used to make us laugh at things that should be laughed at. Human pomposity. Human pride. But I think humour becomes dangerous when it laughs at things that should not be laughed at or puts down things that shouldn't be put down. So there's our first point this morning. The ridicule, that's unbelievable. Let's move on to our second point. The reply that is unbeatable. The reply that is unbeatable. The reply, of course, comes from Jesus. And we've seen before that when Jesus is faced by a sudden, unprovoked attack, that his replies are absolutely brilliant. I said last week it normally takes me at least a day and a half before I can think of something clever to say when I'm attacked 
Jesus does it just like that. And here, the reply that Jesus gives to the Sadducees is very humbling. Because these apparently learned men are completely out of their depth. And on top of that, Jesus exposes their ignorance of the Bible. So notice, Jesus does not say to them, what an absolutely brilliant question, I've got no idea how to answer. He's not stuck for an answer. Instead, verse 24, he says to them, you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. Now that washes over us, but I tell you what, the Sadducees would have found that comment to be absolutely devastating because those were the two things they prided themselves on believing. The power of God and the word of God. So before we actually look at what Jesus means by that, can I show you that when Jesus is dealing with opposition on matters of doctrine, he always takes his critics back to the Bible. Now, I know this is basic, that's very ABC, but I do think it needs to be said. You might be listening this morning and there may be some particular Christian doctrine that you're struggling with um, or you find it objectionable, maybe an ethical issue that's being debated uh, on social media or, or whatever it is, and you find that you are opposed to the opinions being expressed by mainstream Christians. Now, you see, if Jesus was talking to you, what he would say is, let's go back to the Bible. Let's see what God says, because that's our authority. That's going to be our help. That's going to be our hope. I think some of you in church this morning know what this is like. You've been talking to somebody for a few weeks. Um, they've been drifting in their Christian life. Uh, they're being pulled back into the culture. Uh, they, they no longer have their head in the word except perhaps for half an hour on Sunday morning. But they are very, very opinionated. And they're very forceful in their opinions. But you just know that their ideas are a million miles away from the scriptures. Now, to people like that, the Lord Jesus says, I hear you, what does the Bible say? I know that uh, preachers are notorious for telling the church to read the Bible. It's usually what happens, by the way, when the preacher hasn't prepared his sermon properly, so I'm not going to say that to you this morning. But in South Africa, Practically everybody claims to be a Christian. I haven't met many South Africans who don't. But I've often found, as I'm sure you have, that when you start talking to some of those people, their faith is weak, uh, their joy is minimal, they've got almost no assurance, and their usefulness in the church, very limited. And more often than not, the reason for that is they've been spending very little time reading and wrestling with the Word of God. Uh, to give you an, an analogy, it's a bit like meeting somebody who's physically frail and weak. And uh, what would you say to that person? You'd say, well, when was the last time you had a proper meal? And they say, oh, it was about eight weeks ago. Well, that's the reason. 
And when you meet somebody who's frail in joy, lacks assurance, lacks usefulness, it could be that the simple business of reading the Bible for just a few minutes every day stopped months ago. Actually, the Sadducees did read their Bibles. But they obviously haven't understood them. Because Jesus points out something they've never really grasped. But before he does that, he talks to them about the power of God. Do you see that? Verse 24. You don't know the power of God when the dead rise. Notice Jesus doesn't say, if the dead rise. No. When the dead rise, because they rise. And this is perhaps, I think, a good moment to remind you that every single person who has ever been conceived will rise at the judgment, either to go to heaven or to go to hell. Jesus says that in a number of places in the Old Testament, to mention one, look it up in John 5 later. And here, Jesus says that when the dead rise, there are going to be no more weddings. Oh dear. I'm sad about that. I like weddings. I've had a few recently. I mean, not, not of my own, but I mean, I've been to a few recently. I like them. No weddings. Why not? Why not? Well, the reason is that in Genesis that we're told that the purpose of marriage is to produce more image bearers to serve God in this world where human beings are separated from God because of sin. That is the first purpose of marriage. But of course in the new creation we're not going to be separated from God anymore and there won't be any sin. So marriage will have served its purpose. And Jesus goes on to say, doesn't he, that in heaven we will be like the angels. Now, if anybody except Jesus had said that, someone would say, you haven't the slightest idea what you're talking about. But of course, Jesus knows precisely what he's talking about. Just as you and I wouldn't think twice about saying, um, if you're coming to visit me at my house this afternoon, this is the address, this is where you'll find the key, and that's the code for the alarm. And we can say that because we know exactly what we're talking about. Um, we don't have to say, well, if there is a house at my address when you get there, you say, when you get there, you'll see my house and you will find everything just as I've said. And that's the kind of authority that Jesus is talking with here, because he knows. He knows. So these words are extremely humbling, but they're also very heartwarming. James Edwards says in his excellent commentary on Mark when he talks about this phrase that we're going to be like the angels in heaven. He says this, quote, We can no more imagine heavenly existence than an infant in the womb can imagine a Beethoven piano concerto or the Grand Canyon at sunset. It's rather lovely that, isn't it? So how foolish of these Sadducees to reject the supernatural. 
And of course, by rejecting the supernatural, they reject the future, when all the time they could actually be having an intelligent conversation to the only person who actually knows about the future and can tell them what it's really all about. But they don't. So Jesus goes on to say that not only are they ignorant of the power of God, but they're also ignorant of the word of God. In verse 26, Jesus says, Haven't you read about the time when God met Moses at the burning bush? Now think about that. Because at this point, the Sadducees would be thinking, well, we know that passage backwards. Jesus says, actually, no, you don't. I suppose it would be a bit like me saying, um, have you ever read Mark's Gospel? And you saying to me, well, it's actually the first Gospel I read, I think I know it really rather well, and then perhaps I say something you haven't thought of before, and you think, oh, I missed that. And notice, please, that Jesus is taking the Sadducees to their text. This is their Bible. You know, their Bible was only Genesis to Deuteronomy, and Jesus takes them to Exodus right in the middle. And he's saying to them, okay, your hero is Moses. Well, let's talk about the call of Moses. So Jesus doesn't take them to a secondary issue, uh, like marriage for a widow without children, important as that issue is. No, he takes them to that astonishing first encounter between God and Moses. And he takes them to something that is absolutely timeless. Because, now notice this, this is really important. God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He doesn't say, I used to be the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and sadly they died. No, he says, I am. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob because we're still in relationship. Which means, of course, they're still alive. So that's the reply of Jesus. And I want to finish this morning by showing you that what Jesus says here means that all Christians have a relationship that is unbreakable. There's a ridicule in the passage that is unbelievable. There's a reply that's unbeatable. And what Jesus is saying is that there is a relationship that is unbreakable. Because what Jesus says in verse 26 is not simply a lesson in English grammar. Don't make that mistake. Jesus is not playing games with words. So I want you to listen very carefully to this. Because the point is that if you have a relationship with Almighty God this morning, that means if you come to God the Father through, the, through faith in Jesus the Son, you've entered into a relationship that is unbreakable by definition. Because it's with somebody eternal. Once you enter into a relationship with the eternal God, you have an eternal relationship. And that's why the resurrection is certain. 
Yes, it's built on the promises of God. Yes, it's built on the proof of Jesus himself rising from the dead. And it's made possible because of the cross where Jesus takes away the barrier that would otherwise keep us out of heaven. But you're basically entering into a relationship with the living God who is eternal. You see, in a human relationship, uh, the other person can say, well, you know, I'll love you for as long as I can, but I'm going to die. But when you become a Christian, you're in a relationship with someone who says, we are in this for eternity. Now that's what Jesus is teaching here. He's actually taking the Sadducees to the very heart of God's identity and character, which is that he is the eternal living God. And to know him means you cannot die. Which, of course, raises the question, do you know him? I mean, it's one thing to know about him. It's one thing to say, I've heard of him. Uh, it's one thing to say, I quite like the sermons on Sunday. But it's something altogether different to say, I know him. So, think about it like this. When I heard the Gospel, God said to me, Simon, I will have you to be mine. And on that day, I said to the Lord, Lord, I will have you to be mine. And we became one. You see, it's a marriage. It's a marriage that never ends. That's what it means to be a Christian. So the question you have to ask yourself is not, do I know all the proofs of the resurrection? Important as those things most surely are. Now the question you've got to ask yourself based on this passage is, do I know God? Because if I know God, if I've said yes to him, he'll never let me go. Now, if you want to think about how precious this relationship with God is, can I read to you the answer to question one? from something called the Heidelberg Confession. Uh, the Heidelberg Confession was written in 1563, and very wonderfully it was put together in 52 sections, the idea being that you could sit down with your family and learn one important doctrine every week. What a brilliant thing to be doing. The first question says this, What is your comfort in life and death? And this is the answer that I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Saviour, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that not a hair may fall from my head without the will of my Father. And all things must work for my salvation. Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, 
He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready to live for him. Isn't that wonderful? It's a beautiful thing. Can, can you say that? What is your comfort in life and death? If you don't know, isn't it time you did? So Jesus takes this very mocking question and he brings tremendous good out of it. And in a sense, I think we should be very grateful to the Sadducees for asking this, that, that particular question because it caused Jesus to say what he says in this passage, which so many of us need to hear. And uh, in addition, of course, Jesus escapes the trap of their question, just as a few days from this moment, from this, this encounter, he will escape the trap of the grave. So friends, I do hope that you're going to take heart from our little passage this morning. The ridicule may be unbelievable, but the reply is unbeatable, and the relationship is unbreakable. And to finish where we began this morning, it may be that you find yourself in this world having to face the fact that there are many people who believe we have no future. They say, there's only now. When you're dead, you're dead. And you're an absolute idiot to believe that there's a future beyond the grave. There are lots of people who say that. And to somebody like that, you may need to say something like this. It would probably be good if you got your facts from an expert. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we... We praise you for this wonderful reminder of the supremacy of the Lord Jesus. Not only in dealing with ridicule, but also answering so perfectly and profoundly. And we pray that you would help us as your people in your world to be a beacon of light for those who even now are living in darkness. We thank you for not only promising but also proving in the death and resurrection of Jesus that there is a very marvellous future for every Christian. Please help us so to pass through this world with wisdom that we might have good effect on it and not lose our hold on the world to come. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.